Welcome to episode 26 of the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm Cece Chapman. Once again, this is the podcast version of the movie review website Swamp Flicks. We are coming to you from 7th Ward, New Orleans, recovering from so many exhausting things that we've done since the last time we talked. <laughs> uh, there's this little thing called Mardi Gras that happened. Woo! And then immediately that night, I want to say at like 4 in the morning on Ash Wednesday, we piled a car and went to Disney World for a week. It was surprisingly amazing. And then we've been scrambling to catch up on a bunch of movies that have been playing in the theater since then. We got to see Get Out. Yeah. Which was amazing. We saw the Saturday before Mardi Gras, so. Yeah, we skipped the Endymion Parade this year, uh, which we used to sort of feel obligated to go every year. We found a way to sneak away this time and went and see a really great movie uh, from Jordan Peele of Kean Peele. What'd you think of Get Out? Uh, it was amazing. Yeah. Uh, it's the best horror movie I've seen this year. And I saw Split, so. I think I'm slightly higher on Split, but I know that's like a heretical opinion. Yeah, you're not going to get many people sitting with you at the <laughs> lunch table. I just think Split has this like slickness to it that I really like in my trashy movies. Like It's like a highly produced movie. I think Peel's, since it's his debut, he doesn't obviously doesn't have like as much of like command of the camera as Shyamalan does after like decades of doing this. But at the same time, it's it's kind of dumb to like say anything negative about Get Out because it is an amazing movie and a like really great just genre mashup of all these different like things I love like Wes Craven and Rosemary's Baby and yeah I would say like Stepford Wise. I have a huge like soft spot for paranoia horror because the premise of of uh, uh, both Rosemary's Baby and Stepford Wives that you can love someone and be fully convinced that they love you and have committed yourselves like to each other and then to find out that they've just betrayed the fuck out of you like that is the most fucking terrifying thing of all time yeah so uh, <laughs> you know get out paranoia whore I like it and uh like Seems like a script he's been sitting on for so long because like every element of the movie feels like oh, really well so thought out. so many like tiny jokes. Like at, at one point, uh, the white girlfriend is eating uh, Fruit Loops dry out of a bowl and then drinking milk from a glass, and someone pointed out that she had separated the coloreds and the whites. Just like <laughs> fuck, it was like such a small thing, and no, no, it was. It's funny because Peel in interviews has been like kind of denying some of the smaller details like that, like the Fruit Loops thing. I, don't, I think he just thought it was funny, but it's kind of hard not to read into it because so much of the movie is like metaphor. Yeah, and, and I read a like, really insightful article that was talking about uh, the one question that the Asian character at the party asked him, like, do you think that being an African American confers you more or fewer advantages? In the United States. And pretty much he was like asking the question of like, if you're Asian, you're well regarded by white, so you get that plus, but you're always seen as like the other, so there's always going to be xenophobic tendencies, so that's a minus, but African Americans always are seen as natives, but you know, aren't well as well regarded. So like he, he was getting at like this like really deep philosophical question about the nature of what it is to be an American, and yeah. xenophobia, and racism, and he wrapped it up in like one quick question. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he. I don't know. He's obviously been like thinking this over for so long. It, I think he said he has like five other scripts ready to go into production. Um, I'm excited start. to see him get like even better at this. That that's like the thing I left from the screen. Like, how do you start off that great at making movies? How much better could he possibly get with each I mean, franchise? That's the thing with like somebody's like debut album. You know, like yeah. the first album's great because they've been touring that for four or five years, and then you know there's supposedly a sophomore slump, but in his case. It's going to be like his sixth movie that he hasn't had pre-written and tumbling around. Yeah, I feel like directors build on, on stuff a little more than bands. Like, bands kind yeah. of get exhausted up front. 
You can't carry 50 songs in your head and learn 50 songs, but... Well, speaking of movies that came out forever ago that everyone already knows are good, uh, mm-hmm. we also got to see Logan in the theater. Yeah. <laughs> we got to go see it using our New Orleans Film Society pass. So every Thursday night we get to go watch a movie for free at Chalmette Movies. Yeah, and it was kind of a good thing that it was a free screening because I wasn't that excited about the movie because it seemed like a Western. A lot of people have made comparisons to that movie Shane. Shane Which plays is, in the movie. Yeah, it's referenced very heavily within the movie. <laughs> but I didn't... I was just so surprised when I got there, like, how weird of a movie it is. Like, it's very violent, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, but it's also it's just... It's the only rated R X-Men movie. It's also just, like, super sad and super weird. Like, it reminded me of Tideland a lot. Uh, the Terry Gilliam movie, which is just about the last influence I expected when I walked into the theater. Just to watch this, like, weird, sickly family in this, like, kind of sci-fi dystopia, and there's, I don't know, these, like, really gross injections people have to take to, like, maintain themselves in this, like, sort of children... The the point of view of the movie almost feels like it's from a kid's POV. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, Dutch angles and, like, these low, wide angles on stuff, which look really weird. Yeah, and like you were saying, towards the end, it sort of starts to feel like Hook or, uh... uh, (laughs) Or, uh, uh, Beyond Thunderdome. Yeah, yeah. A bunch of kids show up. Yeah, it was just a much stranger and sadder film than I expected, and I really liked it. I mean, what I knew about it going in was all the X-Men movies we've seen so far, those are set in, like, a fantasy version of our reality, like the comic book version, whereas this one's actually set in our reality, if, say, the X-Men existed. <laughs> so it's, like, not glossy and fun. It's, you know, immigration issues and human trafficking issues and, like, all the things they don't really talk about in... You know, regular yeah. X-Men movies. Because regular X-Men movies are fun, and they're made for kids! <laughs> yeah, that metaphor has been stretched over so many different kinds of things over the years. Um, but yeah, like, the movies, I feel, have made it kind of, like, fun, almost like tantalizing violence. Yeah. Like, action blockbuster, kind of like summer popcorn violence. Whereas this one's something much it's, more grotesque. It's re- what real violence looks like. Like, when you kill a person, it's gross. Yeah. It smells bad, there's... St- substances everywhere it's not fun killing people it's gross you can feel a couple sequences sort of get back to that old x-men violence where it suddenly becomes almost like a montage of just slashing people but for the most part each kill is like very hardly felt which was actually a problem i had with the belko experiment which is another movie i saw in the theater this is james gunn's new script uh, and it's about an office that is put on lockdown by this mysterious company that's hired them to work in this Colombian office building, and they're told that they have to kill each other to survive. Like, you kill 30 employees within the office within a certain number of hours, or we'll kill 60. And if they don't comply, then these, like, little bombs go off in their head and kill them one by one, but like the flip of a switch. Which was really a cool concept, but after watching Logan, where the violence was, like, like I said, very deeply felt, like where you could see the blade going in and ending a life, and it's not fun to watch... Uh, the Belko experiment kind of, like, held back on the gore in that way. Like, there's all these... There's so much blood. There's, like, 80 people die. I'm not saying it's not, like, a bloody, violent film. But I guess to maintain the horror comedy aspect, they kind of shied away from showing a lot of, like, gore and viscera mm. to, like, drive home the point of, like, how cruel it was that these people were sort of forced into violence. So I, I guess maybe I wish I had seen those movies in, like, reverse order because it was kind of hard to, like, get excited about the grotesque... <laughs> like... 
a cheap Bloomhouse movie written by James Gunn. That's where and you And directed expe- by the guy who did Wolf Creek, which yeah. a lot of people were really excited and into. Yeah, Very disgusting horror movie. That's where you'd expect the gore. Like yeah. That's where you'd expect the like cruelty and like practical effects. But there's even this one scene where one character is killing another with like one of those uh, fire axes, like you know, like oh, uh, an axe to to break. Uh... In the case of a fire. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> that you meant like an axe, axe on fire. I mean, that would have been badass, but no, that wasn't in okay. the movie. But yeah, the character is like basically smashing in someone's face with that, um, and instead of like lingering on the head to show you like the skull crush, the consequence, yeah. yeah. It's all these like quick cuts where you see flashes of that, but you don't linger on it. Mm. And I feel like that was kind of like a kind of undermined the movie's point in a lot of ways. But what was gory in the last movie I'll try to squeeze in this segment that we got to see in the theater was the lore, very uh, gory, which is a Polish uh, musical about a pair of mermaids that are sisters and start singing at this burlesque disco and kill a lot of people in their, like, time on land, which is kind of this, like, fucked up vacation that goes on a little too long. Um, I absolutely love this. This is my favorite movie Yeah, no, so I far. thought it was great. It's surprisingly faithful to Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid, which I was not expecting. Uh, <laughs> it was just weird uh, and fun. And I, because I don't speak Polish and because I don't know a lot about Poland and the fall of, like, the communism, uh, the communist bloc there... I couldn't tell how much of it was supposed to be allegory mm. because it did seem like some of it was allegory. Like the mermaids, they're spending time on land before they go swim off to America. So like America's their ultimate goal. And they get like caught up in like some of like the capitalist like trends that are now starting to take root in like newly uh, capitalistic Poland. And it's, I don't know how deep any of that's supposed to be or if that was just a convenient backdrop for this musical. Yeah, we had the same problem with Demon last year, which was another Polish horror film that we liked, but mm-hmm. a lot of the allegory was like kind of hard to latch onto as an American audience. Yeah, I mean, Demon was great, but it was it was about the Holocaust, and it was about the role that the Polish people played in turning in their own neighbors to the Holocaust, which was lost on us more or less without reading into it, like reading other literature to like help get us up to speed. What what helps with this one, I think, is that pop music lyrics have a sort of like subjectivity to them like naturally Mm -hmm. so like for you not to understand all the context and all of like the lyrics in the songs and there are a lot of songs in this movie surprisingly yeah like i thought like okay it's set in a nightclub so the the musical aspect is they sing in the nightclub but no it's more like a traditional musical like the the lyrics drive the plot along in a lot of aspects but it's not like a literal thing like you kind of have to read into the sentiment of the songs which i think not having the full context like as a foreign outsider watching it i think this kind of lends itself a little better to that just because it has like an mtv pop music video kind of aspect to it um that demon was more like straight allegory yeah but it's just like honestly i could talk all day about the different themes of the lore but what makes it like my favorite movie of the year so far is just like the sights and the sounds like yeah there's so much glitter and blood and like yeah. beautiful people just like being absolutely grotesque and brandon really likes both glitter and blood so <laughs> yeah it's like kind of like Ooh. the neon demon last year was like a huge highlight oh, of the year for hmm. me i think this one's kind of in the same vein although it's much more like mtv uh yeah, this one's more fun whereas like you know Neon Demon's cold and empty and dark. <laughs> this one's like very like grounded and I don't know. Yeah, Refn kind of like works against. It's fun. <laughs> Refn kind of works against like the v- vapidity of his work, 
where yeah. this one like fully embraces how vapid yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, they're like, oh, hey, we're like teenage mermaids and we like to eat people, <laughs> so you know, what if? But yeah, I was totally into the lore. I, I, I mean, that one and Get Out, and actually, all four of those movies were pretty great. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't gone to the theaters and seen something I've been apathetic about quite yet. Uh, I have. I you saw, have. I saw. Um, you saw Belko Experiment, so. Yeah, Belko Experiment. I, I liked that one. I just thought it wasn't that great. Uh, mm. Kong Skull Island was actually my big disappointment, mm. which I don't even really have that much to say about. It. I just think it's boring. Um, yeah. Because I'm usually pretty bored by war movies, so to like reduce King Kong to like. Uh, Vietnam, King Kong, Vietnam. Oh, ho, 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 yeah, it, just, ho, ho, ho. it felt like a platoon with a monkey. I wasn't that excited about it. Um, he's not a monkey, he's an ape. <laughs> Jesus. Well, uh, we are going to be talking about sort of a cheap area of cinema today. We're going to be talking about a lot of made-for-TV movies. Uh, oh, it, yeah. It would seem like they're not all that connected, but I, I do think there's like kind of an Americana to the two things we're discussing today. Uh, uh, or Canadana. Wait... <laughs> Oh yeah, that's true. Uh, but we are okay. So we're talking about um, movies based on Archie comics, which truly the most American of American things. And we're also doing a pro wrestling documentary, which pro wrestling culture is pretty is American. Very American, but yeah. In this case, we are talking about a Canadian wrestler, uh, so that's going to be a little, a little bit Canadia, of a Canadian. Our neighbors to the north. <laughs> yeah, hey, it's still North Americana, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> sure. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. Watch my punches. My punches are very incredible. You watch them, you go, he connected on all of those. I've kicked people full blast in the face. But do you ever wonder for one second, like, why there's no big bruise after? There is an art to wrestling. But people never come up and say, you're a hell of an actor. They always come up and just go, you're a phony. You're just a phony wrestler. And it seems like I've been defending wrestling my whole life. When I was growing up, to the other kids, we were just this weird wrestling family, and they loved to taunt us. They liked to call us heart fart, which was, oh, I, I hate that. Most of all, they tormented us about wrestling. They used to say that my dad was, uh, was a fake, that their whole wrestling business was a fraud and a joke, and the worst thing they could say that it was phony, that your dad's a phony. That was always the one thing that got you started. And now it's time for our Movie of the Minute segment. This is where we bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. WrestleMania is approaching in the next two weeks. Uh, We've kind of fallen off on watching wrestling on a week-to-week basis. They split the brands, and there's too many now. Yeah, it's like, I don't know, five hours of content each week on top of, like, two pay-per-views a month now. So it's really hard to, like, keep up with it unless you, like, watch it full-time. But... You know, you can check in on stuff like WrestleMania and uh, Royal Rumble without feeling too bad about missing out on it. Um, But I did want to get kind of back into the mood, and um, I had watched a bunch of wrestling documentaries a few years ago uh, to sort of, like, get back into the mood myself when we were... um, Right after WrestleMania 30 came to New Orleans, I started watching the product again probably for the first time since I was, like, a a young teenager. So I was watching all these wrestling documentaries to try to figure out what it is, like, as a form of entertainment. Um, And a few of them have kind of stuck with me over the years. Uh, The two biggest ones, I would say, are Beyond the Mat which is like kind of a celebratory, just look at how weird the business is and how people who stay in it love it so much. Um, and it was kind of like the celebration of wrestling as an art form during the Attitude Era of the late 90s, early 2000s, when it was probably at its peak popularity. Uh, and the other movie that came out around that time, uh, maybe even slightly before, was called Hitman Heart Wrestling with Shadows. And that's what I made CC watch. 
I feel like this one's a little more interesting than Beyond the Mat because it follows one wrestler around for a year. And while Beyond the Mat celebrates the Attitude Era as like this height of ridiculous personalities, Hitman Heart Wrestling with Shadows shows what it actually is. Like It defines the Attitude Era, makes a distinction between what it, it is versus what like kayfabe wrestling was in the 80s where you had these like clear-cut heroes and villains good guys and bad guys that kids can cheer for the attitude era was like slightly more adult um sometimes in a really fucked up kind of way that is really gross to look back on now even though it was celebrated at the time and we watched this wrestler brett hart who's a canadian wrestler from a dynasty family at the tail end of his uh his career as a top guy this is like him sort of waning in his final days as like a main draw on the bill as all these attitude era guys are kind of kicking him and all the 80s personalities out on, on their way in the door what did you think of hitman heart wrestling with shadows it's a good documentary uh it was made for canadian television so it looks like garbage yeah uh, we also watch it on youtube uh because it's <laughs> hard finding it apparently and no i thought it was a good documentary i thought it was an interesting look at his life because you know as brandon said it's it's this guy's career waning because he was very much a good guy and he took his character so seriously as a good guy he thought he was like in life a good guy as though like there is no gray area in normal human interaction and um no i thought it was a really interesting take it did sometimes like there's some speculation that maybe the documentary's been faked and i could kind of get that feeling watching it because like everything happened so perfectly like for a documentarian like sometimes you make a documentary and nothing interesting happens and you have to figure out a way in the editing room to like make your documentary good in this case crazy stuff just kept happening yeah it's it's a year in the life of bret hart and it just happens to be the year it makes sense when they first started and then he's like kind of negotiating his contract um, this is in the midst of the bidding war between uh, WCW and WWF, where all these like top guys were leaving Vince McMahon's company uh, and going to another network for like huge pay- paychecks. Yeah, which I didn't know a lot about the ratings wars between the two. So this was like a really good insight between between the personality cult of personality between like Ted Turner and Vince McMahon. Right, and like you said, Brett takes his good guy persona in the ring a little too seriously and he takes his dedication to Vince very seriously like he's the only two promoters he's ever worked on in his career up until the point of this film this filming is Vince and his dad so to like leave for a bigger paycheck even though it was a really nice paycheck felt like kind of a betrayal to him and he couldn't do it and he felt like it was wrong for his fans but as the year goes on the movie goes from those contract negotiations to this major wrestling event called the montreal screw job uh which is this kind of like weird betrayal that's still shrouded in mystery and like you said still to this day like 15 no, 17 years later feels like it still might be a work like yeah it, it feels not 100% sure exactly what happened. Like, I know what happened in the Montreal Screwjob now, but who was in on it and who wasn't in on it, it's still hard to say. Yeah. And basically, for people who don't know, like, the, the quick version of it is that Brett was leaving the company finally after the year of... Even though his cachet had gone down considerably in that one year they decided to do the documentary, he went from being a good guy to a heel to a heel, but only to Americans, not to Canada. Like, he wasn't that valuable anymore. He wasn't worth $3 million a year for three years. He wasn't worth $9 million anymore. Right. 
Um, so he's leaving the company, and he refuses to give up the belt on this big um, pay-per-view event. That's in Canada. Yeah. Where he is a hero, and no, not considered a heel, despite him being a heel everywhere else. And not only does he have to give it up in Canada, his, his, home, his, home, ta- his home stadium in Montreal... He has to give it up to Shawn Michaels, who is a, a personality that he cannot stand. He's lewd, and he, he's he's dirty. He says dirty things. Yeah, Fred is like the good guy that is like the hero to children everywhere. Shawn Michaels is this gross, self-centered jerk with a ponytail who like... Rubs his crotch on things. Yeah. Like the Canadian flag. He makes a bunch of like jokes about like the size of Brett's dick mm-hmm. and like Brett's sexuality and his like promos which is like places brett would never go he's like i don't even let my children watch the product anymore even though i'm such a part of it because it's gotten too gross and Shawn michaels like represents this grossness to him so he's he's asked to give up the belt to him in his hometown and this is a short version keep that in mind yeah i'm trying to i'm trying to be so concise here uh and he just refuses what he wants is to win that night and then to give up the belt on a lesser show like the next day yeah just forfeit it like just give it back without a fight you know, supposedly him and Vince agree to this, like a gentleman's agreement that, yeah, you have control of your character and how you leave. I'm going to let you leave the way you want. And he wears a wire. He gets Vince on tape being like, yeah, yeah, we'll do it your way. Which is a huge no-no. No one is allowed in those uh, like planning meetings. No, because that one also admits that wrestling's fake, which we know it's fake, but... Well, kayfabe has been dead for so long. People know it's fake. But you're not supposed to have outsiders in there seeing how the, how the sausage is made, you know? Yeah, and also, we don't want to know the outcome of the match, necessarily. Like, I know it's fake and I know it's predetermined, but I don't know exactly what it is. I don't know what the writers have picked this time. So, the match happens, and Vince basically tells the ref to ring the bell early. early. And it makes it look like Brett tapped out, even though there's obviously nothing that happens in the ring. There was no three count. He didn't have time to tap out. Yeah. He and just the f- rang the bell immediately. The fans immediately recognize that it's bullshit, because fans fans are smart. They're too smart. Um, and they just start throwing trash and like basically rioting. But the fans who watched on TV didn't really know, and they were purposely like cutting out the audio so they couldn't hear the booing. And they didn't show any aftermath of it. They just cut straight to the announcers. And they kept the television fans in the dark, so they were very confused about what happened. But the Montreal fans knew. Yeah, so like, even now, all these years later, we don't know who was in on the decision. If Brett actually knew about the decision, and he's kind of working this. I mean, one of my other favorite wrestling documentaries is this Andy Kaufman film called I'm From Los Angeles. Or I'm From Hollywood, sorry. Which is definitely like a work. It's like a... A documentary quote-unquote about a storyline uh, and this feels like the same thing it's got kind of a reality television uh vibe and it this is from early reality television era this documentary so it's not from the one we just watched yeah uh, wrestling with shadows and wwe has been working with these kinds of storylines ever since where you mix reality with kayfabe uh to the point where you can't tell what's real um, like if a wrestler breaks their arm in the ring, it could be for a storyline. It could be reality. Yeah, maybe they really broke their arm, or maybe they're just saying they broke their arm so they can take an actual vacation. Yeah, sometimes to film a WWE movie, they'll like yeah. fake an industry, an injury, and it's just part of the business to this point where we have to question everything. 
back when we did a episode on this podcast about wrestling documentaries specifically, uh, our friend Brandon and uh, our co-host James, who know way more about wrestling than I do, both believe that this movie is totally legitimate, and that it's not a work, and that the Montreal Screwjob is a real thing. Um, I'm not 100% convinced, but I don't need to be convinced. No, it's still it's still interesting. It's still fun. It's just, man, a whole lot of coincidences. You decide to film <laughs> this one year, the year that the most like controversial thing in wrestling that's ever happened. Yeah. As far as like an actual like wrestling match. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and and with wrestling, really, like what is good about it is not what's real. Like it's a performance, yeah. and it, it is supposed to fuck with your perception of what's true to an extent. And I think the best wrestling storylines. And the best wrestling characters are the ones that are an amplification of real life. And this feud between Brett and Vince, I'm sure, even if it is a work, there is some truth to that friction. Yeah, no, he had real reason uh, to hate Shawn Michaels. Shawn Michaels was the one who accused him of having a affair with this woman named Sunny, who was like one of the ring announcers and like occasionally wrestled. And it's very obvious that they had something. So the fact that he like blew the whistle on this guy and like got him in trouble with his wife, who he later divorced, you know, I think that's a really good basis for an actual in-ring feud. Yes. John Michaels is lewd. Well, he also told my wife that I was having an affair. But still, he's lewd and he's gross <laughs> and he's a bad man who has too much sex. Unlike me, I'm the good guy. The stuff with Sonny in this movie is kind of strange because she's like openly flirting with him for the camera, but this movie is like a fluff piece about Brett, so it's not going to like look good look, well it's not gonna be an investigative piece like trying to find out the truth of their relationship like yeah. she says she loves him mm-hmm. as a fan he says that she's flirtatious with everybody and the movie just kind of drops it at that but kind of like what we were saying with like kayfabe versus the truth you can see something more going on there with their like physical language with each other there's yeah. something she describes how she met him when she was 12 years old and she's been a fan ever since <laughs> she's now in her 20s it's like hanging on this guy's shoulder. It's like, ooh. And that is like one of those shitty pitfalls of being in the industry is that you're always on the road. He's never home with his family. No. So like, yeah, maybe an affair with a coworker that you see like 300 days of the year instead of your wife who you who see 65 days of the year. <laughs> like maybe that's maybe that's like something not unavoidable, but it's like something that naturally crops up with a lot of these guys. Yeah. And there's some other fucked up things sort of looming in the background here like that in that a lot of the people that show up as like background characters here, including one of Brett's own brothers, is, are dead now. Yeah. Like this industry just sort of chews people up and spits them out, and it's kind of weird to see all these like ghosts walking around. I, I like to think like watching wrestling now. Oh, we take much better care of them. Oh, you know, we we try and avoid the head injuries that we used to let guys you know get. Like if they get a concussion, we make them sit it out. But then like you watch something from you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and you're like, oh, most of these people are dead. Most I, of them. I would say it has gotten better since then, though. Like, I think yeah. after so Owen's... it wasn't that long ago. After Owen's death, particularly, they got a lot safer with stuff. They won't clear guys. There's, yeah. like, a lot more drug testing going on now, so people aren't taking, like, crazy amounts of steroids, or at least not yeah. while they're with the company. Like, they might drop out for a year, build, juice build up, themselves up, and then come back, but yeah. I don't think it's, like, the coke and concussions era anymore um and then i think that late 90s attitude era that gets praised so often i think it's a lot grosser 
than people are remembering. Like, there were some really messed up storylines back then. Oh, yeah, rape and murder and, like, yeah. killing a pregnant woman. Like, all kinds of gross stuff happened. And this is all done in the, uh... This is all done in the name of, like, getting more ratings. So, like, and Vince is kind of, like, a shameless son of a bitch. But now he's the only game in town, so he doesn't really have to do those gross things. No. And he makes, like, a ton of money pandering to kids with, like, John Cena t-shirts. Uh, so that... that era is not really necessary anymore and I almost want to say I prefer wrestling now to like how it was then except that there was just so much talent um, and the the personalities were a lot to be a lot more individualistic um, and there were like more diversified wins among the different people like Mankind and Goldust and Shawn Michaels even or Triple H like there's there's just more wider range of personalities back then yeah there's fewer storylines going on now and I feel like really great wrestlers aren't as well rewarded nowadays because they tend to take risks and get injured and they don't let you wrestle until you're completely healed now so you might be on the bench for nine months and what what happens to your storylines if you're benched for yeah. nine months like that doesn't help your career at all whereas you know during the attitude era sure you could you know wrestle and get hurt and then go back in the ring three weeks later um, not a big deal. But then again, the storylines were so much more like sexist and misogynistic and mm-hmm. homophobic and racist. And they would play all that up because they knew there was easy heat. For the most part, wrestling fans aren't monsters. Well, there's a large contingent that aren't <laughs> monsters. And they know it's really easy heat to like say something fucked up to them to like get heat out of them. When we watched uh, a local wrestling match here in New Orleans a couple years back at a bar... For quick, easy heat, somebody came out wearing a Confederate flag onesie and was, like, cursing us out, like, the city of New Orleans. And everyone in New Orleans, the entire bar, was just screaming at this guy, Fuck you! I hope your motherfucking dies! I... I hope you die. I hope you get cancer. I hope you get raped. Like all these awful things, yelling at the sky. I think Virginia spat on his kids. Yeah, Virginia did spit on his kids, but you know what? She was proud of that moment. Uh, You know, but like he knew it was easy heat. He knew how how to get us going. And in the Attitude Era, like they were way more willing to like go there to like get us worked up. Whereas now, eh, we don't Um, get as excited about it. But they also don't do terrible things. One of the other changes that's like really eerie in this context is you see Shawn Michaels entering the ring for a lot of these matches, especially the pay-per-views, on this zip line from the rafters. Uh, he glides into the ring on this like long zip line, which is really fucked up because Brett's brother Owen, who's part of the Hart dynasty, died in a similar stunt live on television. Um, so you can see that difference. Like, oh, people used to just do this routinely. Yeah, this was a normal thing. It wasn't that he tried this one stunt that no one's ever done before. It's that this was normal. Yeah. And Owen is part of this wrestling family that's like... Famous. Famous, yeah. Very famous within the, the wrestling world. Their dad, Stu Hart, was one of the promoters that Vince McMahon bought out of all these regional territories when he made WWF, when he made a national company. Well, in international, because he, he has Canada. Like, he bought all <laughs> the regions in Canada as yeah. well. So he has both North... Uh, he has all of North... Of, well, uh, no, no, sorry, Mexico's part of North America. So he has all of Canada and the United States. I don't think there's a name for the two of them combined. But, but, before, but even before he sold events, like, he was a legend as a wrestler and as a trainer. And, and his, his promotion was extremely popular on television in Canada. Like, it, it had great ratings. And he competed very well with Vince McMahon. He just didn't feel like, you know, working as hard, I guess. And one of the things about the family is that he told his wife, like, oh, we're only going to be in this wrestling business for, like, 
two or three years to make some quick money and then we'll get out of it. She wants nothing to do with wrestling. She hated it. It was so sad watching this woman be like, yes, I've always hated it. I still hate it. I hated it then. I hate it now. I think it's disgusting. But now they have eight sons who are wrestlers and four daughters who have married wrestlers, and that's all their children. Uh, so they're like, she says something like, we couldn't be more in it than we already are. Like, it just gets worse every year. Like, we're so ingrained in this company. So it's, it. not only is it sad to watch her complain that, like, basically she was lied to, like, 30 years ago, but also that, like, eventually after this movie wraps, she loses one of her sons to the business, like, in a very literal, like, direct way. So there's a lot of, like, tragedy hanging over the movie in, like, the way the business used to be. Another thing that's really fucked up about the past is something called The Dungeon, which is Stu Hart's training facility in the basement of the house. Um, So all the kids and the wife are upstairs, like, doing normal family stuff. Uh, And downstairs, uh, Stu Hart is running this sort of makeshift wrestling training facility called The Dungeon, where he tortures young men in this pretty homoerotic way yeah so his thing is he doesn't do grappling he doesn't do high flying he does submission moves so he teaches you how to manipulate another person's body an opponent's body in such a way to cause maximum pain and minimal damage and he loves getting much bigger men than him on the ground and then making them scream and the terms he uses for this, he he calls them stretching out. I'm yeah, he's stretch like, him out. he's like, yeah, back when I was a boy, the other boys would stretch me out real good. Uh, it's like, Ugh. That kind of wrestling style where um, you actually connect on your punches and you actually make contact, that's called working stiff. So that's kind of like a homoerotic tinge to it. You can hear, there's recordings of Stu in the movie slapping one of these guys around. And he basically says, like, you need discipline. I'm going to give you discipline. Which is, like, so S&M heavy. He lived in a home for boys, wayward boys, growing up because his his dad got arrested. And before that, they were living in a tent during the Depression. So, so yeah, he ended up living in a boy's home, which... A boy's home in the 20s and 30s. I just... Hmm. Not a great place. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just another thing that's sort of lurking in the background of this movie. Kind of like the Sunny Affair, where it's not directly commented it, upon. It's not part of this documentary. Yeah, but it's it it's something you read very heavily into because it is striking it's and strange. So weird. His yeah. dad has a weird energy, and I'm waiting for somebody to write like more about him. But he is so revered. He's such a saint in the community. He was considered like a very kind and gentle man as long as you weren't in the dungeon with him. <laughs> so I highly doubt anyone will ever say anything to cast more light on this because so far people have only ever said no he was not sadistic he's just really nice this is just you know how he makes his money but i don't know guys i would love to see a horror movie called the dungeon like vaguely based on Stu hart's discipline daddy activities in the basement there's just something really creepy about it and he's got this like soft-spoken kind of creepy voice that, yeah he's like, a tiny little man yeah he's just this little itty bitty old man he licks his lips a lot talking about he hurting does. people he does lick <laughs> his lips an awful lot so we're very creeped out by by an old Stu Hart. <laughs> so okay so you have Stu hearts being a creep you mm-hmm. have sonny and brett's wife sort of like vying for his attentions in different scenes uh they do meet at some point in the movie and they're pretty congenial with each other oh yeah i'll come visit you sometime now that your husband doesn't work here anymore oh yeah that would be nice yeah, yeah. you should come visit us um there's all the background stuff behind the the montreal screw job um there's the 
ratings wars. There's a whole lot going on in this movie that was like rela- released straight to VHS after it aired on television. Like, you know, it, I think it actually won a couple film awards. It did. It, it won a couple awards in Canada, and I think it won a couple overseas awards. But it is technically like a TV movie. It's not like a prestigious thing, but I do think there's a lot going on in it. I, I really... As a historical document, I would say it's quite significant. As a documentary, it's pretty shoddily made. Uh, <laughs> as, like, a film. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah. No, as a historical document, they captured a lot. Would you say this would be a good introduction for someone who's not super into wrestling? Or would you have to kind of already understand wrestling's, like, inherent entertainment value to enjoy it? I think it? you'd have to understand wrestling's inherent entertainment value because otherwise Bret Hart is just so fucking pathetic. He's like, yeah, no, I'm a real hero to these kids, you know. I come out there and I show them, like, loyalty and, you know, respect for your opponents. And, you know, like, you know, I'm just doing the best I can every day. And it's just like, he's such a fucking dweeb. He's not cool. I like it, though. He can't really speak that well. He doesn't really have that much confidence. He's just kind of weird. I like that. And his family's really weird. He's just, I don't know, like, I didn't latch onto him as a character, like... In this documentary. Yeah. Because I, I, it was also like a shitty period in his life. Like he has to turn the camera off multiple times because it's like, hey, we have to go over the bills because you've been gone for nine months and we're running out of money because Vince isn't paying you anymore. You just see him the shitty low period of his life where like everything's falling apart, including his career, which was what he sacrificed everything else for. So. I, I like that his re- resentment is coming from a real place, though. Like, yeah, he thinks he's a good guy, and he thinks that he is the superhero character, which is kind of, like, lame, I guess. But I, there's a very real resentment coming from him about the way people, like, dismiss his artistry as being phony. and like Yeah, what... no, people make fun of him for being a dweeb about it. They're like, yeah. oh, yeah, you take this so seriously. And it's like, well... I've given up everything for this, so I have to at least take it seriously. Otherwise, what's the point? <laughs> yeah, this is 20 years into a career as a professional wrestler. Like, I would also he be upset. A, he gave up a filmmaking career. Like, he, he himself was going to film school, but his dad wanted him to be an Olympic wrestler, and he knew that he couldn't keep on he couldn't put on the weight and keep the weight he needed in order to do that well. So he thought, well, I'll do the second best thing, and I'll become an entertainment wrestler. And so he just did that just to make his dad happy, not because he wanted to wrestle, but because he was like, this is the only way I can dash my dad's Olympic dreams. Yeah. Well, I I don't think you have to be on Brett's side to enjoy the movie. I guess you do see a lot of Brett in the movie, so it probably would help. (laughs) I mean, watching it just and hating Brett the whole time, I don't think would be a great introduction for someone. I think think you have to understand why he's an important figure in wrestling. Yeah. And why faces and heels are important in wrestling for you to really, like, enjoy the documentary. Yeah. So so maybe if you were going to try to get into wrestling as an outsider, maybe start with Beyond the Mat before you get here. Watch some matches and, like, get into it. Yeah. then watch something like this because I feel like this is this is really informative and great and I feel like you don't have to know a lot about wrestling you at least have to be interested in it honestly you could start with Wrestlemania it's mostly for people who don't tune in all the time yeah there's no real storylines in Wrestlemania yeah they bring in like The Rock for segments and stuff it's it's to it's to appease as many people as possible um, so I don't know if, if you check out Wrestlemania maybe you're at somebody's house or at a bar and you see it on and you want more information on the industry I, I think this documentary is really great You're shy with girls, just like your father. I'm not. Aren't you? 
I'm not. Star, listen. I've got a plan. Oh, no. Come here. Come here. feature conversation we're going to be talking about three movies based on archie comics we've been watching a lot of uh, riverdale as it's so fun and trashy it's my favorite <laughs> trashy thing it's like beautiful beautiful shiny garbage uh riverdale has sort of combined twin peaks and gossip girl and set them in the archie comics universe on the cw got this kind of trashy soap opera on a weekly basis with all these like sexy teens dealing with these adult issues like adultery and murder and who even knows what else. It feels like there's like other mysteries. We yeah, there's gonna be yet. a couple like episode of the week. You know, like one of them has like a drug addiction, one of them has like an eating disorder, like kind of a thing. So. And on Riverdale, they've tried to have like kind of a cinematic quality to it. Some of the cinematography looks like a creepy horror movie, like It Follows or something. Yeah, no, really beautiful shots, actually. It's really well made. The production values are really great on it. Yeah, and it's set in that Pacific Northwest kind of imagery with like X-Files and Twin Peaks and that kind they of stuff. They filmed it in Canada using film credits <laughs> and, you know, tax incentives, so. Well, there's your Hitman heart connection right there. Some Canadian love. That's true. We are talking about a lot of a lot of things that were filmed in Canada today, so. And we're all also talking about a lot of made-for-television material. Mm. Um, the first Archie feature film that we could find was from 1990. It's called Archie Return to Riverdale. Uh, it was also released, um, I believe, in Australia as Archie to Riverdale and back again. This was the first attempt to bring Archie comics to adult issues, but unlike Riverdale, instead of using like hot teens to tell the story, they made the Archie characters 30-somethings. Well, this is the Reagan-Bush era. You can't have sexy teens having affairs. <laughs> you need sexy adults doing it. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of a weird impulse. They're like, they want to get an older audience, or they want to get, like, make Archie sexy. Because Archie comics are really wholesome. So wholesome. <laughs> so, yeah, they want to sex it up, but yeah, they don't have the, the guts to do it with teenagers. And I, I guess if you look at other soap operas around that time, primetime soaps, you have, like, 90210... They're teenagers misbehaving, but they're all played by much older actors. And I would say, even by 92, even though that was a couple years later, I would say culturally the United States had changed a good bit. Yeah, it's just two years, but a lot can happen in two years. Yeah, I mean, like, there was, you know, a different president. You had Bill Clinton on the scene. (laughs) I think that was 92. Maybe it was 94. I don't know. But, uh, you know, grunge music, popular music had changed. There was, like, a big teen movement. Generation X showed up. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Whereas they were all, like... 
you know, 14 when this came out, you know, by, by the time 1992 came out, they're all in their late teens, you know, mm. I don't know. Ready to raise havoc. Yeah. <laughs> well, this movie premiered on NBC as a potential pilot for a series, and it, it appeared during sweep season, and it got decent reviews, but pretty much no one watched it. Like, no one was buying what they were selling. Like I said, they're in their 30s. Uh, this is during a high school reunion in Riverdale, so you have Archie, Jughead, Betty, and Veronica all coalescing in Riverdale for the first time since they were teenagers uh, for this, like, high school reunion event. So they're all looking back at their teen years, which are the comics that we all grew up and loved, you know. So you have uh, Benny and Veronica sort of reigniting their love for Archie mm-hmm. and him still not deciding which one he finds more attractive. Nope, not by the end of the movie. Sorry, spoiler. He does not pick because he can't because he's Archie. Which is complicated in the movie because Archie has a new fiance that he met in law school named Pam, who is not a part of the comics, just nope. a new character. Pam! Uh, also, Betty has a fiancé who's a total jerk. Oh, he was the worst. Who's also not in the comics. Nope. So they added all these sort of extraneous characters, which by the end of the movie sort of fade into the background, and you can tell that they were created just for this pilot, um, and not to last any longer than that. Besides that A-plot, you also have Jughead, who is a divorced, balding dad, who is trying to reconnect with his son, who's like this Dennis the Menace type jerk. They describe him as being like a real problem child, and you think he's going to be like 13 or 14, you know, like, has a slingshot, spits on people, maybe he's like sneaking alcohol and cigarettes. No, he's like six. (laughs) Just six. And I kind of found his antics like the funniest part of this movie. Like, if this movie were just about Jughead being terrorized by his, like, asshole son, who completely disrespects him every time he, like, asks him to do something, he just, like, basically just brushes him off abruptly. I feel like, I don't remember when Problem Child came out, but, like, some of the gags were, like, ripped straight from the movie. Yeah. Or vice versa, I don't know, but... (laughs) And, uh, the third plot in the film is that Archie is dead set on saving the ice cream parlor. Pop's chocolate shop, Brandon, it's not an ice cream parlor. (laughs) What is it, like a diner? Yeah, it's a a diner, but it's called chocolate. Yeah. I don't know, spelled funny. Apparently this means a lot to him and not a lot to anybody else. And that allows him to give this big rousing speech about like the spirit of Riverdale towards the end. The weirdest thing... There's a couple really weird things in this movie. There's multiple weird things. The weirdest thing to me initially is the flashbacks to them in high school. Um, so this is where you get to go back and see like the idyllic Betty, Veronica, and Archie love triangle. But when they do the flashbacks, they don't hire teen actors to wear... like the cheerleader and football uniforms it's basically these older actors dressed as kids and it's yeah. really off-putting and they all have the worst like hair like dye or wigs imaginable like archie i have no clue what color hair the actor who plays archie usually has i know that he's not a redhead but mm-hmm. they just pick this very vile shade of just flat red for him that just <laughs> looks like tempera paint or something and Veronica's got this awful oversized platinum blonde wig that she wears when, you know, in present day. But then, like, in her teen years, she's got, like, a blonder, like, more, like, yellowy blonde teenage wig. And they both just look so extraordinarily fake. Like, I don't feel like blonde hairstyles are that difficult. Like, why couldn't they have gotten her, like, wigs that, like, fit her head? I, do- I don't understand this. Yeah, Betty's wigs look like the kind of wigs you see for, like, $3 sales on Amazon. Like, yeah, like, like... It's, it's too big for her head, so, yeah. like, they had to pat it out a little. So her hair's bigger than her. 
they the lengths are all wrong. Like the bangs are too long, and like it's supposed to kind of look like a bob or a shag or something. <laughs> a bob, I don't know, but it's just it's off. It just she looks like a little kid in a grown up wig, and it's just weird. I think Veronica's like wigs kind of work. I don't think Veronica was even wearing. Oh, uh, okay. I don't think they made her wear a wig. Her I hair think they just looks made good. Betty, yeah, her hair looked good. I think they just made Betty wear wigs, which was again a very bizarre choice on their part. And uh, both girls individually sneak into Archie's room at some point in the movie, uh, usually wearing lingerie, trying to like seduce him, which. You know, typical Veronica move, but for Betty is like a big deal. Whoa. And yeah, they had to like make sure we knew that how big a deal it was that <laughs> Betty decided to be sexy for once. She's like, okay, I mean, they're 30 now. I, I hope she's okay with wearing lingerie. If she's not, that's, I'm kind of worried. <laughs> I guess the, the adultery is the taboo there as well. Yeah, because she does have a fiancé. And he, and he has a fiancé as well. Neither of them are actually married, though. <laughs> this whole thing is like, ooh, it's adultery. It's like, it's not technically adultery. It's cheating, sure, but, like, you're not married yet. It's as far as they're willing to go in 1990, though. And this, of course, amounts to a third attempt where all three of them, Archie, Betty, and Veronica, are all in the same room together. He has them locked in separate closets, and Pam arrives uh, and there's like this three companies mix up where Archie has to like sneak off with Pam so she doesn't notice the two beautiful yeah. women that are trying to seduce him in his own home. Yeah, he locks these two girls in closets, barricades them in, is like, hey, Pam, you're here. <laughs> let's uh, ooh, let's get in the convertible right now and leave. But, Very convincing, Archie. Good job. I mean, this is not the most exciting part of the movie no. at all. This this three-way love triangle, it really doesn't amount to anything. Just like it doesn't in Riverdale. I mean, Archie's the least interesting part of Archie. That is true. Always has been, always will be. <laughs> yeah, I, I could do with any without any more scenes of Archie talking about his music on Riverdale. It, it makes me roll my eyes so hard every time. Yeah, but I'm trying to like him. <laughs> especially now that I found out he's like Samoan. Oh yeah? Yeah, which is crazy because he looks like the whitest kid of all time. Even with his ginger hair, which I'm pretty sure he's naturally a ginger. He's a super handsome actor on Riverdale. Just oof, man, he's so boring. But the guy in this movie is not handsome at all, and it's kind of strange. I that think this he, he's what the himself. 1990s thought was handsome, or 1980s, because he played Prince Charming in some terrible pilot show that didn't go anywhere called The Charmings, where he played Prince Charming. If Dave Coulier is really what gets you going, I think this he guy... He does not look like Dave Coulier. <laughs> He's got the sex appeal of Dave Coulier. No, he doesn't. <laughs> He's got the, like, traditional square jaw and, like, that fluffy hair thing, you know, where it's, like, swept back over his head, you yeah. know? Like, I don't know. He's got the typical handsome guy thing going. He's just also old and, you know, has that terrible hair color. And he's still kind of got that gee whiz, uh, Archie personality. For a lawyer in his 30s to still be saying gee whiz with, with <laughs> any regularity is alarming. Yeah. Okay, so another weird thing from this movie, Archie kind of tries to, like, gaslight Betty a little bit by convincing them that they already had sex in high school. Yeah, which was fucked up. She's like, remember that night? The night where we almost, but we didn't? And he's like, what are you talking about? Of course we did. She's like, wait, what? I remember that. And he's like, yeah, no, we did. We totally did it. <laughs> and then she freaks out, and he's like, yeah, I gotcha. Neither of them say the word sex because they're adults in their 30s, and that would be crazy. <laughs> It's such a weirdly intense scene, like kind of like this weird dark tone in that scene. And then later in the film, there is a flashback to that night uh, 
in the motel that they almost shared together or parents came and got her. I can't remember the details. It's stupid. But they're wearing like the high school uh, outfits again and like there's this like kind of melodramatic. They're less convincing in their cheerleading outfits than Olivia Newton-John was in Greece, (laughs) who was very clearly much older than a cheerleader usually is. Uh, Also unconvincing is Archie's like strives to save Pop's shop or whatever he didn't go eat there every day what does he care <laughs> he's a lawyer there is a uh, a bomb scare at the climax where the shop almost gets destroyed which yeah, i, I guess is... i don't remember why reggie had a bomb but for some reason <laughs> reggie had a bomb lost control of it and it almost blew up pop's tro- maybe he was going to use it to blow up pop's chocolate shop because by the way it was of course reggie who wanted to knock it down because yeah it's reggie that's what he does he's an asshole so yeah, I guess he had a bomb to demolish the chocolate shop instead of like, oh, I don't know, like a bulldozer, like a normal person. And then through like a series of like Bugs Bunny-ish escapades, yeah. he ends up blowing up his own place, which I think he owned like a gym or something. Yeah, he owns like this like health food store that also does yoga classes and... Did it do yoga? I don't think it did yoga. I thought he was like more like a meathead. Like, I thought that maybe there was like a jazzercise class being held in his building or something. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's... It really doesn't matter. It's like such a boring subplot. Yeah, no, I, d- I obviously didn't pay attention during it. So. so the reason I'm throwing all this to the side is to draw attention to the film's centerpiece, which is Jughead. <sighs> As always, Jughead is the most fascinating part of any of this because he's such a weirdo. How did he have a kid? He's asexual. We all know it. <laughs> so in this ca- in this case, he is a divorcee mm-hmm. uh, who is scared of women, so that kind of works with his yeah, asexuality. Yeah, he, he, he is deeply misogynistic in that he's terrified that, that women will destroy him because his ex-wife destroyed him. <laughs> so, just stay away from all women because they're dangerous and you can't trust them. So, I mean, it doesn't really amount to much. There's like this gag where Big Ethel is still after him and it turns out that she's super hot. Yeah, she was she was so tall in high school, and that made her so ugly. But then it turns out she's now a hot, hot supermodel, <laughs> and she only wears like bikini tops and sarongs. Essentially, like she doesn't actually wear clothes, as far as we can tell. But really, the payoff here is when Jughead discovers that his own kid is also scared of women and won't flirt with girls his age. Mm-hmm. So to encourage him to come out of his shell, Jughead decides to rap to the hit Archie's song "Sugar Sugar." I included that clip at the top of this segment just so you can hear how beautiful it is. Oh, <laughs> it is so bad. It's a lot like the top that scene in Teen Witch. Except not good. Oh, yeah, it's not. The rap is not nearly as good as the top that rap at all. Uh, Everything about the top rap. That. Top that rap. Well, I can't say Top that, that rap. Top that rap. Uh, <laughs> everything about that's great. But nothing about this is great. So I guess in that sense, they're very similar. You weren't impressed by uh, Jughead's noodly breakdancing? He he obviously went to clown college, that actor, because his ability to, like, wiggle in weird ways is really upsetting. (laughs) Like, he was, like, doing the walk like an Egyptian, but then he was also kind of pop-locking it, which I don't know how he would have known how to do that, but... He was doing, like, the wave by himself. He was just doing all kinds of weird noodly things that freaked me out. I don't like it. He's the worst. Yeah, and, and one of the weird things to, to me in this movie is they uh, got rid of Josie and the Pussycats, I guess because it's just take up too much space. But one of the things that does is it removes, like, one of the only black characters from the movie. And so the only black character on screen is this, like, uh, high school coach mm-hmm. who sort of popped up only in a couple places. 
I think they only included him to show up during Jughead's rap and nod approvingly because they kind of focused on this one guy sort of nodding along, like approving that Jughead. Oh, yeah, this is, is a good <laughs> rap song. Yes, I am African American, and as an African American, I can say for all African Americans, this rap is a good one. I think it's a good one. What? <laughs> I what? Agree. Archie Comics? What were you thinking? I agree, <laughs> I agree with this coach. I think he knows what good music is. Um, I, I honestly don't think that Return to Riverdale is abysmal. It's mostly just boring. Yeah, and the production values are so terrible. And it, Vulture did a great rundown of the article, uh, of the movie, in an article. And they did talk a little bit about the production history. And knowing that it was slapped together in a matter of like months, both the rewrite of the script and filming it and editing it like knowing that they did that in like less than six months they did that in like four months or something ridiculous like that does make me like understand why its flaws were the way they were like they went to the wig store to pick out a wig for betty and they had a perfect one picked out and then the day of filming happens and that one's not there for some reason so they just grab another wig and go with it like you know, those were the kinds of decisions they made. And with TV shows, you kind of give them a little birth. Like, mm-hmm. they, yeah, they, they, they might not have had the formula right, and if they had been picked up for a series, maybe this would have been good Archie content. But it's mostly just kind of bland as is. Yeah. But you're, you're right. Like, the fact that it is competent and it was slapped together, like, haphazardly, it's, it's kind of impressive in its own way that it's not as terrible as it looks. Like, if you look at the VH cover, VHS cover for this film, you immediately think, like, oh my god, what did they do? Like, yeah, this, it, it looks, looks like a weird porn <laughs> parody of Archie Comics. Yeah, because, again, it's always the hair. Yeah. They just, it looks like they all have slapped on wigs, and that's, that's kind of a quick and dirty way in porn to, like, do a parody of something, is you just give everybody the wigs that kind of sort of look like the characters they're, they're playing. Speak, speaking of wigs... So Jughead is not only a rapper, he mm-hmm. is a bald rapper. Yes. Uh, and his signature crown is included in the promo shots for this uh, movie, but not in the movie itself. No, he never wears the stupid crown hat. And there's this scene where Archie finds this old jukebox that's apparently stuffed with all these high school memorabilia. Yeah, where they went to the through. junkyard because apparently, you know, that's where Jughead grew up. So he's just digging through an actual junkyard and then they find all the stuff of theirs buried in a junkyard under a pile of garbage. No nod to the crown in this scene. No, no, they found a baseball mitt. <laughs> oh, how fucking useful is that? Everybody remembers the iconic baseball mitt from Archie Comics. No one remembers that. They could have dug out Archie's red sweater with the letter A on it and Jughead's hat. That would have been fucking useful. You know, they found it in a suitcase, they pulled the suitcase out from the junkyard junk, and what do you know? There's stuffs in it. They put them on, they go, ah, the good old days. <laughs> it's, it's a waste. I don't know. I think that it's kind of a shame that this is the only, like, feature film with, like, the standard Archie foursome, those, like, four main characters. But it's it's fine. Like it's- I mean, you know, we don't know what's gonna happen with Riverdale. We might uh, eventually have to do a Veronica Mars and kickstart a movie for them. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe so. I think that's the same network that show was on too. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it was. It was CW. But I would recommend at least going on YouTube and just having a look at Jughead's sweet, sweet dance moves and that sugar, sugar number. Because oh. I love that scene I so much. I hope you much. don't get it stuck in your head like I have because <laughs> I want to fucking kill myself. It has no way. rhythm. How is that in your head? It's amazing. Uh, sugar, sugar. Oh, honey, honey. Oh, honey, honey. <laughs> okay. Well, I think we could put that one to bed. 
please. The next movie in the Archie series was also a pilot for a television series, but it was one that was actually picked up. It was Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the movie, starring Melissa Joan Hart in 1996. And you might remember part of the plot of the movie is she goes to Paris. That is a different Sabrina the Teenage Witch movie. <laughs> yeah, after the show was successful, there were two films where she went to different places. Like, there's one where she's in Rome, and it's pretty much a riff. It was riff like a of... 90s thing. The Rugrats did that. Yeah. She did that. I'm sure other people did that, where they just, like, took their show and moved it somewhere. That one was a riff on Roman Holiday, and yeah. it's not that great. We could have done all three Sabrina the Teenage Witch movies, but it's... that sounds exhausting. <laughs> Next time we do, we do a redux on the Teen Witch. <laughs> you know movies of our childhood we'll we'll add one of those yeah when we did a teen movies uh for girls from the 80s and 90s with virginia we totally missed this one yeah we forgot about which i don't know how much that's okay we're saving it for our two we just didn't know at the time (laughs) so this aired on showtime as a pilot it's a two-hour film it's a feature movie and it was picked up for that abc series which was like a huge chunk of my childhood i don't even remember what that block was called like tgif oh yeah tgif okay Bruh! <laughs> what's wrong with you yeah it was in the second slot i think i think uh i think for a while boy meets world was first and then sabrina the teenage witch there might have been something else before maybe step by step or something but i only watched those two so so this is a pretty like there's not a lot of overlap with that show in this movie no i think i think sabrina and her best friend are the only two characters that carry over from the movie to the television show but then her best friend is replaced after the first season and rumor is because her best friend is this this very pale redhead and later her best friend is a person of color and the girl who was replaced was a little bitter about it, I think, maybe. Ooh, no. And she was like, they're just doing this to like increase the diversity of the show. Or maybe <laughs> she didn't say that, maybe someone else did, and I'm, you know, attributing it to her because she would be the one who stood the most to lose. But So I think it's probably okay that we didn't do this with the other movies that we watched because this movie is so close to Teen Witch in a lot of ways. The plot is remarkably similar. And I think maybe a little bit of Clueless thrown in there, just because Clueless was like a hot ticket at the time this was yeah, made. Obviously in the fashion, in some of like the like interpersonal, like non-witch related problems. Yeah, it's it's more in like Clueless. the attitude, like you have Cher who has that automated closet where mm-hmm. she can like put outfits together on a computer. Uh, Sabrina can stand in front of the mirror and just, and just do magic yeah. and try out different outfits. And it's but kind they're of... all like weird dated like 1920s flapper outfit, 1940s housewife. It's like, wh- why would, why is a teenage girl would she like try all these? Why wouldn't she just like pick out things from her own closet or like things she saw in magazines that she can't afford? But you know, whatever writers, you just wanted to see her dressed as a flapper. But otherwise it is very much teen witch. It's her 16th yeah. birthday. She discovers that she has witch powers um, and she uses it to gain popularity and get the hot guy. I would say that plot-wise, this one deals with the implications of that a little more uh, yeah, you can't logically do that. than that. You're not allowed to make people <laughs> fall in love with you, or you get turned into an animal, which, in a real fucked-up turn of events, her cat, Salem, got turned into a cat for exactly the same thing, for trying to make someone fall in love with them. And then he didn't tell her that that would be the consequence because he was hoping she would be a cat with him so that they could date as cats. He has been her pet cat, like, her whole, like, life. Like, or at least as long as she's lived with her aunts for the past several months. And she gets undressed in front of this cat. She tells this cat her problems before she knows he's a magical cat. Like, this cat knew way too much about her and then was hoping maybe they could have cat sex. Yeah, he's basically like this adult man that lives in in her room. He's an adult man. 
Just in a cat body. Hoping that she'll also be turned into something he can have sex with. There's definitely a gross implication there. Very gross. Um, but as far as like the gaining popularity and like leaving your best friend behind, in Teen Witch, when she does that, it's, she just leaves her best friend behind. Bye. Yeah, there's like no consequences, and it's kind of this like weird like Reagan era like power fantasy. In this one, like it's it's like you, there's a lot of hurt feelings. Popular girl. They don't say the most popular girl with caveats. You know, they just say <laughs> she, I want to be the most popular girl. Which one do you think is more fun to watch? Ooh, Teen Witch, because that's that great rap scene. Yeah, Teen Witch. Teen Witch <laughs> is pretty amazing. I think I got them mixed up in my head. Like I think I they are con- remarkably similar in plot, so I can kind of see that. Like she floats in her bed, and yeah. her aunts know she floats in her bed, and they're like, "Oh, should we tell her early that she's a witch?" And it's like, "No, you better not, because she's a witch, and you can't tell her until she's 16. That scene occurs essentially exactly the same way in Teen Witch. This gave me deja vu. I was like, yeah. "Oh, I just thought this was Teen Witch. Like I have seen this movie a few times as a kid. Like it's this just one been was a long harder time. to find since it was on Showtime. I think it was taped on." You know, people used to just yeah, tape stuff tape off stuff. the TV. Oh, yeah, my copy of Willy Wonka was taped off of uh, oh, yeah. Disney Channel for some reason. I think because there's also there's also like a the '90s like president of Disney talking about something for a few minutes before it, like about something else, or maybe it's just taped over another tape. I don't know. Yeah, those are good to have for the commercials that aired. They're like a really weird time capsule to like what stuff. Used my to Willy be Wonka like. didn't have commercials. Oh, what? but yeah, it was in its entirety. We were oh, pretty no. picky about like what we tape, but. It, it was always taped over other stuff, so yeah, there'd always be like these weird layers where like the, <laughs> end, the ends of the tapes there'd be like little clips of weird things. It's like collage art. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> so differences between this and the TV show: there's no Great Witches Council, which means there's no Pendulette or Deb Harry in the movie, um, but that's not a big deal. Yeah, and also she hasn't encountered them yet. Right, I mean, she, they might exist; they just don't show up. She's just discovering her witch powers. Her aunts are kind of very hands off in the way they tell her what to do like they're like oh you're a witch now you can do these things they hand her a book but tell her nothing about the consequences or boundaries they just sort of let her figure it out on her own yeah and only when they find out oh you're trying to make a human fall in love with you oh that's a terrible idea like only then does she find out oh hey yeah she might get turned into a cat yeah that might have been valuable information up front because what's the first thing a horny teenager is gonna do with oh hmm. <laughs> And I guess we should mention the elephant in the room at this point. Uh, the boy that she's crushing on very hard in this movie is a very young Ryan Reynolds with a lot of sun in and his long hair and uh, a gap tooth. I forgot for a second that it was Ryan Reynolds. Because <laughs> I'm picturing the one from the television show. Harvey from the television... Or, well, she doesn't like Harvey yet. She likes this other guy with the sun in, but... Harvey in the television show is also a blonde. Oh, yeah. And in the movie, he's like a dorky brunette. But she, okay, so yeah, she has the best friend pining after her, which is going to be her true love eventually, because he's a nice guy. He's a nice guy. But she doesn't want the nice guy. She wants the hot jerk who runs track, and there's all these like slow motion shots of Ryan Reynolds uh, running track. He's uh, got a puka shell necklace. <laughs> Cece thinks he looks a little like James. He looks just like our co-host James. <laughs> which is hilarious to me. Like, as soon as I said that, Brandon couldn't stop laughing. Like, that means he agrees. But at least in this movie, there's consequences to him being a jerk. In Teen Witch, she gets the jerk guy who only wants her because her po- she's popular, and that's just it. That's just it, because he's hot, and she got him. This movie, there's kind of a lesson I'm about, like... Not. You're not. <laughs> yes. Sorry, it's just the Teen Witch music is just so good. I mean, we could just watch Teen Witch again, because that's two movies in a row where we've been thinking about that one. Yeah, well... Maybe this Halloween, it'll, it'll happen again. Maybe. 
But yeah, he turns out to be a jerk at the end who like wants the wrong things from her. He's yeah, not interested. He tries in who to she fuck is. her, and she's like, "Whoa, we have never gone on a date before." Right. And he flips out, and so in a very bad idea, she decides to sabotage his car because she gets out of the car and is like, "I'm walking home," and then she sabotages <laughs> his car so he can't leave where she is. Yeah. You just tried to like sexually assault. You. If anything, you should lock him in his seatbelt. Yeah, like, <laughs> like you should have locked him in his car and then made yeah. him like drive off into the sunset, not like. Make his car drive around in circles so that he just chases after it like 10 feet away from you as you're like, haha, I won. Bad idea, young ladies. If you're gonna, if you're gonna fuck with a guy who tries to rape you, don't do it while he's still 10 feet away from you. Just... Some valuable life lessons from the Sabrina movie. Um... Well, look, they taught us the opposite of life lessons. They told us it was a good idea to fuck with a guy who like, might want to sexually assault yeah, you. Yeah, she like... gets him like real angry. Yeah, he's super pissed now because his car won't like do what he wants it That's to. That's true. Uh, fuck. Bad idea. Yeah. She could have gotten murdered. <laughs> now that I think like we should teach young ladies to not get raped and not piss off, you know, potential sexual uh, predators. You know, we should just teach young men not to be sexual predators. But still, I watch this movie and I feel a lot of anxiety for Sabrina. Well, the movie's not. There's no threat of anything like that ever happening. It's. It's. I thought of it the whole time. I was just like, "Damn, girl, this is a bad idea. You're gonna get murdered." I thought this movie might take a turn. There might be like bloodshed. You know. Well, okay, the major checkpoints of the movie, there's her Sweet 16 party, Mm -hmm. there's a pool party, Mm -hmm. there's like a racetrack meet, Mm -hmm. and then there's the Spring Fling Dance. Mm -hmm. Which had a weird theme. Uh, What was the theme? There was like something... I don't know exactly what the theme was, but you sh- you pointed them out to me. Oh, there was yeah. demons, like in the background, like behind the um, behind the like punch table. There's these like paper mache demons as part of the. Everything's white though, so it's like very icy looking. So I don't know if it's supposed to be heaven and hell. Maybe so, but they, it's not. It's uncommented upon these demons just sort of hanging out in the background with the school dance. Okay, the I, the the theme I do remember is that everyone wears white and silver. Yeah. But that's not really a theme. That's, that's not really a theme. <laughs> so maybe it is heaven and hell. I have no idea. I have no clue what was going on. I mean, it, it is set in... Well, it's not set in Riverdale. It is set in Riverdale. Oh, that one is set in Riverdale, I think. Yeah, but actually they try to make a, a point to reference Riverdale early and often. Like, mm-hmm. when she first wakes up, I believe in the first scene, she says, like, oh, nothing ever happens, interesting ever happens in Riverdale. And then they're uh, all cheering on, like, the Riverdale race team... But there's no, like, other characters from the Archie universe in this. No. Um, it's, I, I guess they just want to have that wink for people who grew up with the comics, but it, it yeah. seems like this is its Biddy own separate Veronica could have been the names of, like, two cheerleaders who, like, she bumps into, they, like, exchange, like, some kind of remarks, and then you don't see those two cheerleaders again except as background characters. They could have done it that way. Yeah, like, I don't really see a point for this to be in the Archie universe except that it, it is a teenage witch, so that's, like, what they wanted to make. And this yeah. is this is Melissa Joan Hart's bridge after Clarissa explains it all to like have her new property. Yeah, it just it just I don't see the point in setting in Riverdale because she is the same age as Archie and all of them. So how did she not run into anyone? Right, and I don't think on the show they ever really addressed that either. No, huh? they, they, well by the time the show came along, they were like nobody actually reads Archie, so uh, we don't have to address it. <laughs> so no mention of Archie ever again. One of the cool things I, I think they did do with the comic book thing was the screen wipes were like comic book pages okay, turning. Okay, yeah, they did do that. That's, that's, but that's then nice they stopped doing touch. that part way through the movie and then they did other weird wipes. Yeah, that's true. Bafflingly, with no explanation, really. <laughs> I mean, screen wipes have no explanation, but yeah. I won't get into that. I mean, the movie's pretty fluffy in general. Kind of like the uh, Return to Riverdale movie, it's a setup for a series. 
So there's not really much you can close. She has the arc with the jerk, and then at the end she shares like a kiss and a dance with what's his name that pines after her. Harvey. Harvey. I guess. Yeah. I guess it's Harvey. I have no I idea. I forgot. I forgot actually the the nice guy's name. But but, but once, Harvey is her traditional boyfriend. But once the series starts on ABC, it resets. Yeah. Like uh, it's it's her moving into the house and discovering the same things again. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that's very different from the series in here is the way they did Salem, mm-hmm. who is the uh, the black cat that lives with her. Uh, in the show, it's a very obvious animatronic puppet that they made talk. Uh, in this movie, it's kind of like weird CG graphics. Yeah. It's very rudimentary CG, but it actually looks pretty good. Like They yeah. just move his little cat mouth up and down. Yeah, no, it's a real cat for the most part. Um, it's a bunch of differently shaped black cats. Yeah, they're, they're not all the same. Like, there's a young one with a little white patch on its chest, <laughs> and there's like an older, slightly tubbier one, like... But I think they did a pretty good job of hiding the CG on that. Yeah, no, I mean, black on black, it's it's you're not going to really see that too too much in the CG, so they just need to suggest movement when you talk. You not don't that, need to make it, like, sync up. Cause not that I at all minded the, like, puppet from the show. The puppet's pretty cute. No, I, I love that puppet. It's yeah. so shoddily made. He looks like <laughs> the sparks are going to fly out of him at any moment. I love that puppet. Would you say this is a skippable movie, or...? Yeah, if you want to watch the TV show, go ahead and watch the TV show. You don't need to watch the movie at all. Yeah, it's like Teen Witch kind of fills this void. Yeah, watch Teen Witch and then watch Sabrina the Teenage Witch. (laughs) I kind of have Melissa Joan Hart's back, though, because she is a wrestling fan. She got in a uh, Twitter feud with Kevin Owens two years ago. Which was hilarious. Yeah. I mean, she's this kind of like harmless Christian mom now. uh, But it's just funny to me that she watches pro wrestling and like has kayfabe arguments on Twitter. Uh, And that she played a witch. How risque. Oh, yeah, really. (laughs) <laughs> maybe she's the the cool kind of christian who like is okay with uh you know yeah. fictional depictions of witchcraft kind <laughs> i grew up we're not okay so we've been talking about made for tv movies since this podcast started yeah slightly more prestigious 10 times better than any of that <laughs> one of the best comedies ever made what how, how hyperbolic can i get here jesus i, I love this movie scale it back a little okay. bit okay like... uh pretty great comedy <laughs> okay that's that's <laughs> Much more appropriate. <laughs> 2001's Josie and the Pussycats. I love this movie. I've loved it since it came out. It's crazy to me that it got such shitty reviews and bombed so hard. I didn't know its history of people not appreciating the satire at the center of this film. This is a satire of early 2000s MTV culture. TRL era boy bands. Backstreet Boys specifically, they riff on pretty hard. You said like even more specific than that, like Backstreet Boys album two, right? Yeah, it was their second album, uh, Millennium. I think it was. Are called? they posing in front of an airplane? Yeah, they're posing in front of an airplane. There's a music video uh, involving them at an airport. They're all wearing like the shiny white outfits. The uh, like... asphalt in the music video set has this like it it's... just rained sheen on it. Yeah. The movie starts with that specific imagery with a boy band called DuJour, which is a pretty funny, like, band of the day. Uh, oh, yeah, she just pulled up the image. It's exactly like it's this It's exactly. Movie. Except <laughs> in the Backstreet Boys one, for the actual music video, they're all wearing dark-colored coats from varying lengths uh, to, from trench to pee uh, and white pants. But I think for the album cover, they, they were wearing uh, all white. I recall. So, DuJour is basically these, like, hunky idiots that have been hired by this record company to be a band. Uh, and they're the number one band of all time, and they've been a band for all of uh, six months, I think, at this point. 
And they say these like idiotic things like du jour means family. Du jour means teamwork. Which that's not at all what du jour means. No, it is, it is very much not. <laughs> um. And they are killed very early in the film because they start to sense this vague conspiracy about why they're the number one band in the world. And, like, what exactly is going on behind the scenes of their record label? They decide they want to do their own remixes on their albums, so they're listening to the tracks, and they discover some of the tracks have other people talking on them. Right. It's, like, weird. They're, like, telling us to buy things. (laughs) And uh, the evil record company exec that controls this band is... Alan Cumming. One of CeCe's favorites. He's the best. (laughs) The other evil record company exec in this movie is one of my favorite villainous performances I've ever seen in this on the screen. It's <laughs> Parker Posey is this absolutely insane megalomaniac, kind of like Magatu from the Zoolander film. Very similar. She basically was bullied as a kid and had a lisp. Ha- because she has a lisp and as retribution she decides to brainwash everyone in the world to think that she's cool. Not even everyone, it's the teens specifically, because those are the people who bullied her. So she wants all the teens to think she's cool. Right. Um, and to Adults make, just think she's cool because she's rich. <laughs> I mean. To make this plan possible, she uh, starts putting subliminal messages in pop music to sell brands like McDonald's or Reebok or anything you can name. Like, any brand name from the 90s is yeah, in Yeah, and film. also fads as well, like... Uh, the colors of things will like change so like oh orange is the new color everybody's got to wear orange now so everybody has to throw away all of their clothing and start over yeah like, every week so i really appreciate the um specificity of this film satire it is such a specific era like that movie walk hard does like the entire span of like pop music mm-hmm. and especially like pop music biopics and this movie is like the exact opposite it's like this like two year sliver it's it's the britney spears hit me baby one more time backstreet boys millennium album trl carson daly carson daly is in the film in the film probably the first time he's ever subverted his image he like comes in and like plays this like goon pretty much he's like one of parker posey's goons yeah but he is also playing himself yeah he's evil (laughs) yeah he he threatens to kill uh, a couple characters with a baseball bat So after uh, DuJour is unceremoniously disposed of, they have to find the next new act. And the town that DuJour happens to be playing in when they need a band ASAP is Riverdale. And Alan Cumming decides to pick up the first band he can find in Riverdale, which happens to be Josie and the Pussycats. They are a Sum 41 type power punk band. The movie starts with this song Six Whole Hours, which I remember actually being kind of a radio hit at the time. From the film. Wasn't that bad. It's a pretty yeah. decent, like, uh, shitty radio punk pop song. And you get used to their style very early. I think the opening credits are, like, a music video for that song. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a pretty good joke where Tara Reed, who is the idiotic drummer, is holding a poster board sign that says, Honk if you love the pussycats. But she's uh, behind a light pole, so you only see Honk if you love pussy. And people are, like, crashing their cars. <laughs> Um, so Which is a very adult joke for this movie that is ostensibly for 14-year-olds. Yeah, I, I think... I mean, I would have been 14 when it came out, so I, for me saying I love it, I, obviously like a huge bias, because it was just the right age when this came out. 
But I do think it is pretty smart and it does have those adult jokes and like these weird subversive things creeping in from like, maybe, any maybe corner. that was part of why it got such terrible reviews is that it had these weird adult jokes mm-hmm. mixed in with this kid thing and they never quite told you who it was for yeah I, okay so some of the reviews dismissed the movie as bubbly and fluffy fun so i thought like oh they just didn't get it and then i read ebert's review which was like i think like a half a star out of four he did it. uh and he called it as dumb as the spice girls i'm like oh so he just didn't get the satire that's not true he got it he just didn't think it was smart uh he was like oh they inject brands into every possible scene which is true like i don't yeah. think you'd have to look for a shot where there isn't a visible brand in the film there's logos everywhere like it's a film about brainwashing kids into buying brands, but then in the film itself, they do not let you see anything without there being a logo on it. Yeah, a lot of McDonald's arches and... In the backgrounds of things, or like, somebody's got like a Coca-Cola in their hand, or there's pillows that have the Target, like, bullseye on them. You know how uh, in movies they have shopping montages where girls will go on and try a bunch of different outfits in front of the mirror? There's actually one in Sabrina where she tries on bathing suits. And this one, when they go shopping, the montage is literally just brands. Yeah. Like, there's no shots of them trying on brands. It's literally just the brand names, like, shot from weird angles. They didn't take any money from these brands for the movie. The movie only made half its budget back. So this isn't, like, ad placement. It's just satire of, like, the way MTV did this to us like yeah no i'm craving a coca-cola and a crunch wrap supreme <laughs> right now i don't know why but i am it's so blatant and it's so funny to me like it, I, I guess subtlety is not the movie's thing but no it's it hits you over the head with it and then it kicks you down the stairs with it and then it buries you in a shallow <laughs> grave with it but but then on, satire. but then on top of that you have a little like weird subtlety uh like subversion coming from alan cumming and P- parker posey who just plays such weirdos in this film weird weird characters <laughs> so okay so we talked about tara reed as the drummer for the band mm-hmm. rachel lee cook is the uh josie, josie which makes sense because the writer and director team who made this also made she's all that the bass player is rosaria dawson who's always wonderful she was way too good for this yeah this is probably the first time I ever saw her, so I wonder if this is like er, like super early in her career. I mean, she did Kids first. Oh, but Kids, that's right. Yeah, don't forget, she was in Kids, so <laughs> she deserves millions of dollars and all of the Oscars forever for being in that shithole of a movie. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> she is a saint for making it through that. I like that movie, but it's it's definitely rough. No human should have to go through that to make a movie. <laughs> it's just a fucking movie. She's a great she's a great actor. This easily is the first time I ever saw her, so I, I think most of my warm feelings towards her are from watching her in this. She hasn't given that much to do. She feels betrayed when uh, the band blows up and becomes the next big thing. They start to... Well, Rosario Dawson's bassist and Tara Reed's drummer start to question the conspiracy theory. Like, why are we getting popular so fast? What's going on with the mixing? And they threaten to kill her and Tara Reed and make Josie like a solo artist. Well, pretty much, it's kind of crazy because Melody, the drummer, she's really stupid. And mm-hmm. she's the one who figures out the conspiracy first. Because Valerie Rosaria Dawson's character is hung up on like, wait, I thought we were all going to do everything together. Why are you more popular now? Like, Josie, that's not fair. And like, she's like hung up on these like interpersonal like girl fight things. So she doesn't even notice the conspiracy. She just gets very inconvenient, so yeah, they both like get threatened with like murder. Yeah, and they're, it's so weird that they're murdering all these people just so they can hide messages like uh, conform, 
there's no such place as Area 51 is, like, one of the messages. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, like, really goofy, like, bubbly version of uh, They Live, pretty much. Yeah. Um, Which, I don't see why they couldn't have just paid off the, like, Backstreet Boys du jour, <laughs> you know, to, like, just, like, be like, oh, okay, yeah, that's what we do. We put ads in songs. That's cool. Yeah, like, they probably would have been down with it. They're not, like, you could just told them, like, it's, like, for, like, the greater good... You know, like, if we didn't do this, you know, society would collapse. They would believe that. They were stupid. But but to say that Rosario Dawson doesn't get a lot to do in this movie, I think, is a little unfair, just because I don't think anybody gets a lot to do in no, this movie. No, even Rachel Lee Cook, she's not in, like, multiple scenes because, like, she's too busy being a rock star and, like, abandons her friends, which just means she's just not in portions of the movie that right. is ostensibly... Josie and the Pussycats, not, you know, Val and the Pussycats, not Melody and the Pussycats. I mean, like, Missy Pyle's in this movie for, like, no reason at all. Uh, she's in the, she's the, uh, she's Alexander's sister. I forgot Alexander's sister's name. Yeah, she's, like, the manager's sister who tags along. Even at some point, a character asks her, like, what are you doing here? And she goes, I was in the comics. Yeah, which is like, great. <laughs> he's like, what did you say? She's like, nothing. <laughs> uh, which is, I don't know, kind of like the meta humor at work here. But I, I just think it's funny that there's, like, all these characters that sort of get, like, equal time. Even though Josie has, like the A plot with she's like a love interest who's trying to keep her real even though she's he's glam. so boring he's always been boring <laughs> and he will always continue to be boring yeah I don't recognize that actor at all no I, the actor the actor's a nobody oh and, you mean the characters yeah yeah I don't I, I haven't read enough Josie and that's like the one Archie so thing like Mel B well that's that's a Spice Girl but still uh, <laughs> it's something Joe B Something stupid like that. Yeah. I need to read more Josie comics. Like, of all the Archie, like, subplots, that one and Sabrina I'm more interested in than the, like... I mean, I like all the new stuff, but... Yeah, tell me about the new stuff. Like, what's different between that and, like, the sort of wholesome Archie past? Okay, so, the guy who makes Riverdale, uh, he got his start because he was doing this one-man show called Archie Goes to Hollywood, where Archie comes out as gay and goes to Hollywood to become a big star. And he got a cease and desist letter from the Archie Comics company saying never fucking do that with our archie so he just changed the name he's like comic books go to hollywood and (laughs) named him joe comic book instead you know he got away with it a couple years later they tapped him to start writing for them so he did the afterlife with archie uh series which was a smash hit it was the first archie comic to be sold exclusively in comic book shops and not in supermarket aisles next to the bubble gum because this was, like, real hardcore shit. People would die. And he's, like, shaking up the format by, like, adding gay characters? Yeah, and... Kevin uh, was a character. I don't know if he added Kevin in or if Kevin was added in shortly before him. Uh, but he has used Kevin in some of his comics. And he also... I don't think he wrote it, but he kick-started uh, the new Sabrina the Teenage Witch, which is called Afterlife with Sabrina. Or not Afterlife with Sabrina. Uh, it's The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina or something like that. Right. Where it's very Lovecraftian and there's like blood and like tits and human sacrifice. Yeah, I'm interested and, like, in reading that. <laughs> yeah, like that's like weird and fucked up. Yeah. Uh, and then there's also a couple like other like interesting ones. Like they did this offshoot of Archie comics where it's like 20 years in the future and they do two parallel lines one where Archie marries Betty and one where Archie marries Veronica and at the end of both of them they come together uh at the end where he gets shot uh trying to defend his gay classmate uh who is now a U.S. senator Kevin from like getting shot by a crazy person in a restaurant like at a fast food place and he dies that is something that's interesting about Archie comics is they have these like 
sort of single run offshoots uh, where they'll do like multiple issues, but it's kind of like its own thing. Yeah, like at one point, uh, Archie Comics met the Ramones. Because Archie's <laughs> band, the Archies, were good enough to be in the same room with the Ramones at some point. Not dressing the Pussycats, which would have made more sense, but... I actually found Archies. that highly offensive in the Return to Riverdale movie. They make this offhanded reference like, Oh, the Archies are the greatest band that's ever been to Riverdale. I'm like, you can't just erase Josie and the Pussycats. Yeah, Josie and the Pussycats were the greatest band. <laughs> Archie was a good second, because there were no other bands, really. Well, so. that song Sugar Sugar that came from the Archie, uh, was it the, the cartoon? Yeah. Um, that was like a number one hit twice in two years. Yeah, no, Sugar Sugar is a great song. And right. not just the rap version, the <laughs> sugar bum 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 honey honey bum 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 bum. Like, we all know that song, whether we want to or not. I would love to have a 7-inch of the rap version, though. I would love to divorce you right now. (laughs) What have you done for me lately? You You just just, said awful things. You can just play this tape back in court and get all the money, I'm sure. I'm fairly certain. They would just be like, ooh, girl, yeah, no, that's wrong. Okay, so I think if if you're going to be fair, looking at all three of these movies, if any of them approach... The new interesting stuff Archie comics are doing. Do you think Josie is worthwhile? Yes. Is it Riverdale quality? Uh, it's trashy in a different teen way. Nowadays, yeah. tra- teens aren't like trashy in like a disposable, you know, like that that shiny mylar that comes on the outside of CD cases kind of way. <laughs> They're trashy in a we we have like sex and do drugs. Uh, like way, Tumblr, so. Instagram feeds. I'm sure full of uh, Archie. Uh, Riverdale gifts right now. I'm sure. Yeah. I haven't been looking at my Tumblr lately because I don't have time for that shit, but... <laughs> but I remember, like, there were a lot of moody teens reblogging, like, Twin Peaks imagery, like, three, four years ago. That was, like, very heavily reblogged thing at the time. Now Twin Peaks just keeps reblogging it, and I'm like, no, I, <laughs> stop. Leave me alone. No, you can't advertise yourself. Right. No, I post GIF sets from you. Um, I stand by the Joseph and the Pussycats movie. I think it's just as good as when I loved it when I was that age. So I, I don't know if I'm just too biased. I can't step away from it, but... I don't know. I think it's a good movie. I don't think it's a perfect movie. There was a couple jokes that didn't land for me. There was a couple, like, class-based, like, humor jokes that I didn't really like. Like, part of the reason why Parker Posey has a lisp is because she has fucked up trash person teeth. Because she's, like, a hick from Arkansas. It's like, oh, that's, that's just fucked, you guys. Yeah, but I mean, the band starts in trailers. Yeah, they're they're, poor. Yeah, and they're like more highly valued than these like rich sycophants who work in LA. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe it just wasn't fully thought through. Yeah, like why did why why were like teeth that you get from a vending machine that are like buck teeth with like some of them rotted out? Why was that a funny like gag? I don't know. Like it was like so like cheap. I think Posey makes it work, but I I see what you're saying. Yeah, I but I do appreciate that the movie has this like kind of sleek music video imagery. Like it got the photo shoots. Oh yeah, of the no, the photo down. shoots looked perfect. It's too Some real. Some of the stuff they got so perfectly. I mean, like I said, like the opening scene with Dujour looks exactly like Backstreet Boys Millennium album cover <laughs> and the opening music video for that, which I think was Backstreet's Back. All I right. believe. Was it that one? I want to say the Backstreet's Back video is the Haunted House, house one, which yeah. is on their first album. Yeah. Strangely enough, how are they back? They haven't... <laughs> it's their first album. Well, they say all right, and you're just supposed to accept that it's all uh, right. It's all right, yeah. Yeah, now I actually can't remember. But there's other, like, smart references in here. Like, Tara Reid has this, like, 
scene in the shower. Sorry, it was. I have to interrupt. It's the music video for I Want It That Way by the Backstreet Boys from the Millennium album. But there's also references to The Shining and uh, Psycho. There's the the Psycho shower scene mm-hmm. with Tara Reid, uh, who's in the this McDonald's-themed shower. It's so weird, the branding <laughs> in some of the scenes. Because, I mean, nobody has brands really in their bathroom except for on their toothpaste and their products. And they could have actually just had a lot of that imagery, like zoomed in on their toothpaste, zoomed in on like their hair products, but no... They decided to bring in food brands into the bathroom. And then when she gets out the shower, there's like a, a figure in the backseat, kind of like this Norman Bates imagery. She gets out the shower and there's something written on the mirror and lipstick. So I don't know. This movie plays smart with the imagery. I think some of the satire, although it's not subtle, they do get these like creepy jabs in there. My, one of my favorite lines is Parker Posey's bragging to in, her investors. She says, uh, we turned your whole world into a TV commercial. Which is like such a horrifying thought, and a really funny like way to look at how branding was done at the time and how it's still done. Like when you wear clothes and make certain decisions, you're advertising different things. There's a really great rant about that in the Robert Crumb documentary, where he just looks around, and is disgusted by all the brands he sees, just like in a public. Why can't space. they just wear button downs <laughs> and you know dungarees like the rest of us? Yeah. So I think the movie holds up really well. Yeah. I, of all the Archie cinema, I'm glad that we got at least one decent movie with a theatrical release that I can Ooh, be yeah, proud no, of. Because <laughs> the other two were a little rough. <laughs> I, I don't think they're bad, but they're they're skippable. They're like they're forgettable skippable. works. Um, I mean, I think you should watch Archie: Return to Riverdale if you can, because it is wow, wow. Just at least watch that wow. sugar sugar rap, y'all. It's it's so good. No, I kind of want to watch the whole thing again. No. Brandon says we can't watch it again. <laughs> It's terrible, but I kind of want to watch it again. <laughs> well, if you want to look back at old episodes where we talk about similar stuff, episode number 12, we do a countdown of pro wrestling documentaries that we enjoyed. I think that one is a good how-to guide for getting into the sport where we tell you which ones to watch first, and I think Hitman Heart is pretty early on that chain. So if you want to maybe watch one or two movies before you get to that, that would be a good place to li- good episode to listen to. Episode number 16 is the one where we did witches movies from the 80s and 90s. So there's a lot of teen witch talk on that episode if you want to get oh, there. Yeah. Um, a couple more things on the site I want to plug real quick. The two things we talked about at the beginning of the episode that were um, sort of time-consuming things for us this year. We went out for our first adventure as Crew Divine on Mardi Gras this year. Uh, four of us from the site... Uh, me and CC included, dressed as Divine on Mardi Gras Day. Uh, and I posted uh, um, some pictures of that on the website. And I also posted some pictures of our tourist trip through Disney World where we were looking for Divine. Uh, we were looking at, at all the places we could find Ursula in the various parks in Orlando. Um, and we found a few good Ursula statues and puppets out there. So uh, maybe check that out as well. And uh, talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.